Welcome to Bethel World Outreach Church. Our values are devotion, diversity, and discipleship. Devotion through honoring God by trusting His Word, praying, and worshiping together. Diversity by embracing God's heart for every nation. And discipleship by helping others follow Jesus. So join us as we're reaching a city to touch the world. I want to turn now. It's it's going to be hard to do. We've had so much fun, haven't you had fun? It's good to be in God's house. I want to turn, though, just for a second, we're going to make a couple things I just want to say. Uh, All morning, I keep bumping into new people, both last service, this service, met some folks. see you back there, over here. Seems like when I go to put a sticker on somebody, it's a new person. When I just bump into someone to try to meet them, I assume they go to this church, and, you know, I'm new, too. Been here, you know, what, what, six weeks, what, or five, I don't know. So I don't know who's new and who's not, but I keep bumping into more new people, and that's fantastic. God's bringing a lot of new folks into this blended family that Pastor James talked about last week. So if you didn't understand, I just want to make sure you understand, that meal that we've already paid for, it's out in what we call the Future Fellowship Hall. If you don't know what that is, you think it's some other building, nope, it's in this building. All you have to do is go out into, this, uh, out into the lobby out here and follow people. And if you don't know where you're going, they'll point you. They'll direct you where to go. Uh, that, that meal's already paid for. We actually want you to come. You think, no, that's probably not for me. That's probably for people who really regularly go. No, no, no. We really want you to come have a meal with us. So we hope you will. Thanks for, for joining us here today. We hope God is meeting you and speaking to you. But now I think I need to pause for a second because we're going to move from something really joyful to something rather disturbing. But I feel like I need to talk about it today. So I'm going to ask your permission. Is it okay with you if I turn to something actually disturbing? Um, on Thursday, June 24th of this year, at about 1.25 a.m. Eastern Daylight Savings Time, in a little suburb of Miami called Surfside, a 12-story condominium building, the Champlain Tower South, began to collapse. You may have heard of this. Witnesses say that when it began to happen, when the building began to collapse, it began with a loud boom, louder than a lightning strike right next to you, followed by a rushing noise that some witnesses describe like a pack of classic motorcycles racing past, but louder. Those who were outside near the building were quickly overcome by a dust of cloud and debris and had to cover their faces with their shirts or their jackets or any cloth they could find because it became nearly impossible to breathe. Barry Cohen, a 63-year-old resident of the Champlain Tower South, heard that sound inside his condominium, woke up in the middle of the night, rushed through his home out to the door, opened it to where there was normally an interior hallway of the condominium units. But instead of a floor and walls and a ceiling, there was only what he called, quote, a gaping hole of debris. No place to put his foot. Just descending down. But Barry was one of the lucky ones. Ninety-eight victims died in the collapse of that tower. I think we have an image of it for you. It's disturbing, and I'm sorry I wanted to warn you before we put it up there, because if you really think about what happened, mothers, fathers, brothers, sisters, 
aunts, uncles, friends, best friends died there early that morning. And some didn't die immediately. Those who survived or crawled out of the rubble or were uh, extracted, a few were able to be extracted, uh, were, many were injured. Some we won't know for years how much of a toll this event has taken on them and what they've breathed in and what it's done to their body. Why? Why did this happen? And why we don't know the exact and precise causes of the collapse of this condo building all of the theories that the current ongoing investigation is pursuing, all of the theories surround too weak of a foundational structure in that parking garage on which the building sat. The bottom floor was a parking garage, and that foundational structure, every theory surrounds that being too weak. We have evidence that they already knew it was too weak and nothing was done, that the concrete had degraded, that the iron was too weak, that perhaps even cheaper materials were used in the beginning construction of that building that were used in the other towers that did not collapse. Why do we talk about this in church? When our foundational structures are too weak, what we originally built to enjoy will eventually come to destroy. I want you to really think about that principle. When our foundational structures are too weak, what we originally built to enjoy will eventually only destroy. And the gap between originally and eventually may be a year, may be five years, may be 10 years, may be decades. But eventually, if our foundational structures are too weak, what we originally hoped we could enjoy for a long time, we will eventually come to, to find out can only destroy. And now I hope you recognize I'm not just talking about buildings. I've seen this happen again and again. I've seen it happen in lives when the foundational structure on which a life was built, dreams were being pursued, careers were being constructed, things were being achieved. When the foundational structure of a life was too weak, what eventually comes in bears too much weight and the life collapses and people nearby are destroyed, not just the life itself. I've seen it happen in families. When the foundational structure of a family is too weak and there isn't anything to hold up under the weight and strain of life, Vision, fractions, anger, and a whole family structure can collapse. It happens in communities. It even happens in a society when an entire culture, the moral fabric of the culture, isn't strong enough to support it. Over time, eventually, a culture can build many great and wondrous, glorious things, wonders of the world, but it will collapse under the weight of its own accomplishments and descend into chaos civil war, even all-out genocide. When the foundational structures are too weak, what we originally build to enjoy will eventually come to destroy. Please recognize and think about that principle. Last week, Pastor James started talking about our one word, basically, answer to that problem. How do we build better structures to support societies, families, etc.? We have one word that answers it, discipleship. That's it. Discipleship. We make disciples. That's what we do here at Bethel. We make disciples. Who make disciples? Who make disciples? Who make disciples? Uh, That sounds simple, but it it takes a lot of work. And he started talking about the first E in our four E's discipleship, which is engage. 
We want to engage our culture and the community and invite them into this blended family. But there are four E's. We have a little chart for it for you uh, just to see it in a cycle. We believe that this is not just something you do once and then you're done. You just keep kind of cycling through this for yourself as you're helping others cycle through it and they're helping others cycle through it. We engage culture and community. We establish biblical foundations. We equip believers to ministry and we empower disciples to make disciples. And those disciples who are making disciples engage the culture and community, establish biblical foundations for those that they engage, equip believers to minister who then empower them to make disciples. And those that they make disciples of then engage the culture and community. Do you see? And today we're going to talk about the second E, establish biblical foundations. So turn with me, if you will, to Hebrews chapter 11. Hebrews, that great uh, chapter on faith. If there's anything that is the foundation for us, spiritually speaking, biblically speaking, it is faith. If you have your Bibles, pull it out, turn to Hebrews. Uh, It's about nine-tenths of the way through your Bible, past all of the T's, first and second Timothy, first and second Thessalonians, Titus, and there's a little one-page, very important book, Philemon, and then you hit Hebrews. If you go to Peter and Jude and all of that, you're too far. Revelation, you're at the end. So Hebrews, are you good? If you actually have your physical Bible, by the way, you'll see more context than you can see when you look on a little phone. It's all right if you have a phone or a device, look there too, that's fine. We'll also have it on the screen, but if you can get your Bibles out, it will help you. Hebrews chapter 11, verses 1 and 2, I won't have time to read all of this chapter, but we'll cover bits of it. Now, faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. For by it, the people of old received their commendation. I want to stop there for a moment. We're going to cover a little more, but I want to pause. Now, faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. In some of your versions, it said, now, faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. Why in the world is it translated different ways? My friend out in the lobby, LJ, who does so much work with our volunteers, she's Italian, always gives me my Italian hug. I can give you my Italian hug, Dave. She she knows, and my daughter who went with me to Italy knows, that when you say the word prego, it can mean many things in Italian. I don't know, maybe 35 or something. I'm just throwing out a number. Because every context, prego, 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 means something else. Welcome, prego. What would you like? Prego, thank you, prego. Excuse me, prego. You know, prego just keeps meaning different things depending on where the context is. And these words are kind of that way in the Greek. They could mean different things. and They're difficult to translate the fullness of the meaning. So those different words aren't wrong. They're right. But this word, now faith, is the assurance or the confidence or the substance of things not seen. Calvin, John Calvin, that great founder of the faith, said he wished people would just translate it literally because then we could get to all those many things. That faith is the literally foundation. You see? It is the foundation of things hoped for. It is the underlying structure on which what we hope to receive eventually can be set. It is the underlying foundation, the underlying structure on which what we hope to receive can be built. If what we hope to receive comes and faith isn't there, now catch this, if what we hope to receive comes and faith isn't there, we won't have the underlying structure to support the weight of what we're asking God to give. If we have everything we've been dreaming of, but faith isn't there, we'll crumple under the weight of our own dreams. 
So the first thing I need to tell you is that what we do at Bethel is we establish a confident foundation of faith. And I hope if you're taking notes, you'll write that down. We establish a confident foundation of faith. You notice assurance, confidence, evidence, those words in this passage. We don't have time to go too deeply into it, but that's what we do with every new member in the faith. We want them to come to confident faith. And we want to build a foundation for them in multiple ways that will endure across time. Now, it says that faith is the assurance of things hoped for. And that word hope could just mean empty hope or wishful thinking, right? As a matter of fact, a lot of our culture is telling us to just have positive thinking, optimistic thinking, hope that has no anchor, hope that has no reason, just hope for the best because you throw hope out into the universe, good things come back. But you've seen that go poorly, right? If hope isn't just wishful thinking, it has to be rooted in something. And the Hebrews, when they heard the word hope, didn't have bland hope, didn't have generic hope, they didn't have materialistic hope. I hope I could get a really nice new car. Really, I hope we can get that great all-inclusive vacation. That wasn't what they were thinking of. Maybe what we were thinking of. Not them. For them, hope was always rooted in the promises of God. If you read through the rest of chapter 11, you'll see promise, promise, promise coming up again as you read through it in your devotions this week. Because the promise was so important for hope, and God's covenant was his primary promise. Now, that's a strange word to use. Maybe you don't know what the word covenant means. An ancient promise called a covenant was a promise unto death. When in the ancient world you formed a covenant, you would actually kill animals, cut them in half, lay them on two sides, and then both parties would walk through the blood. It was a promise in blood. If I don't keep my end of the promise, may what happened to these animals happen to me. A promise unto death. It's that kind of promise. And when God made his covenant with Abraham, these, these Hebrews knew this very deeply, he walked through the blood alone and didn't have Abraham walk through the blood. A smoking pot went through to symbolize God's presence. His way of saying, I'm going to keep this promise for you and for me. If you don't keep the promise, I will die. If I don't keep the promise, I will die. And he did because he knew we couldn't keep the promise. It pointed to Jesus Christ paying the price for all of our promise breaking that we all have done in our sin and selfishness. That's the great promise he's talking about. That's why we have hope. Because he has promised on the basis of his own character, on his own faithfulness, that he will do what we can't do and he will save and redeem everything we kill and destroy. So, the first thing we want to make sure our disciples can say is this, we believe God's promise. That sounds like a simple phrase to add onto all of that stuff, but I hope you hear it all behind it. We believe God's promise. Will you say that with me? We believe God's promise that he will redeem. So one of the first verses I have uh, new disciples memorize is 1 John 1.9. 1 John 1.9 just says, if we, w- we will confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and cleanse us, purify us from all unrighteousness. I don't want them, though, to just memorize the words. I want them to experience the reality. And often what happens when they finally break open to start confessing their sin, they actually do have experiences connected with that. But the world is telling them something different. Don't share your sin. 
Don't share your secrets. If you tell people the mistakes you've made, they'll eat you like a pack of ravenous wolves. Every celebrity knows this. Don't admit you did anything wrong. Everybody knows you did something wrong. Don't admit you did something wrong. Definitely don't apologize. Don't stand up in public and apologize. Have you noticed this from our politicians, from our celebrities, from our public figures? It's the exact opposite of the gospel of Jesus Christ. So people are coming into the church thinking they shouldn't ever let anyone know they've made a mistake. But when they can experience through me, through Christian community and the direct activity of God, that when they confess their sins, he's faithful and just and forgives them, all kinds of stuff starts happening. Sometimes people start praying, they say, I feel warm all over, or I don't know why I feel so light. It's like weights are falling off my shoulders. I'm tingling everywhere. I don't know why I feel so much joy. I'm happier than I've ever been in all of my life. Why do I feel so light? I'll tell you why you feel so light. You just received the promise. The primary promise that God has made through the entire scriptures that when we sin, if we'll confess and repent, he will pay the price, he will lift the weight, he will bear the burden. We, we traveled a few months ago, uh, some of the pastors here, to Dubai, United Arab Emirates. Uh, Pastor James and Lady Lowe and Pastor Philip and Pastor Carol and Justin Gray who helps write some of the worship that we sing here I'm probably missing someone. Maybe I'm missing someone. Uh, we went to Dubai for ministry training events connected to Every Nation Seminary. In Dubai, there's a very different building than the condo I've been speaking about. It's called the Burj Khalifa. Uh, I went to the Burj Khalifa on a little bit of a day separate from when I was done with my teaching. I was teaching quite a bit. When I was done, I had a day where I could go to the Burj Khalifa. Tallest building in the world. Went up to the 125th floor and I wasn't at the top. That's the observation deck skyscrapers that looked huge from the ground looked like Lego toys from this observation deck. It was, it's, it's indescribable. I looked for pictures to try to give you a sense of it. None would give you the experience of being there, so I'm just describing it in my words. But when we went through and toured it, what we found out is they had to build the foundation for that building in a very specific way because Dubai is on sand. So they had to dig beneath the sand to get to the unseed subsurface. When they got to the compacted subsurface, they had to drive 192, or drill, 192 reinforced concrete pylons, five feet in diameter, all the way down over 160 feet until they reached the bedrock. 192 of those pylons. Over 160 feet deep. In other words, they went deeper beneath what you could see than the condominium in Florida rose above the earth. That's how deep they had to go to make sure that something would last. If you want to build good foundations, let me tell you, it's going to cost you something and it's going to take some time. But when you build deep that way and you get in contact with bedrock, you can go straight up into the sky. So for me, when I'm giving people these truths, I want to make sure they don't just hear them and memorize them. I want their concrete pylon of faith to go down through what they can't see and finally reach the bedrock of God's faithfulness. When it reaches the bedrock of God's faithfulness and they experience his faithfulness, we're starting to build a foundation. You with me still? So let's talk about the next thing we want to drive pylons into. First is his promise. Next, we trust God's path. We trust God's path. Let me go down to verse four. 
By faith, Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain, through which he was commended as righteous. God commending him by accepting his gifts, and through his faith, though he died, he still speaks. By faith, Enoch was taken up so that he should not see death, and he was not found because God had taken him. Now before he was taken, he was commended as having pleased God. Now without faith, it is impossible to please him, for whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. He is good. Verse 7, by faith, Noah, being warned by God concerning events as yet unseen in reverent fear, constructed an ark for the saving of his household. Now, I'll stop there because I could go through more patterns, but I might lose you. There's a pattern being established here. Each and every single one of these figures had a path laid out for them by God that didn't make sense at the time, but they followed it by faith. So the very first one is one of the first ones that I try to work the new disciple with, Abel, Cain and Abel. Abel, when he gave his offering, gave from the first and best of what he received. It's the first example we have in all of the Bible of what we call God's tithes and our offerings. I always call it his tithes, my offerings, because his tithe already belongs to him. That's one-tenth of everything I earn goes straight to the church every time. By faith that God's going to take care of us and that that's going to do more than I could ever imagine him doing with it. And then my offerings are what I give on top. Why is that so important? That's one of the very first pieces of God's path he gives us in all of the Bible. Now, why would you start with disciples that way, Dave? That's, that's farther down the road. That's very difficult for them. Yeah, I know. It's one of their key idols. And I want to topple the most powerful idol in their life as early on as I can. I mean, this is America, isn't it? It's, it's money and food. We want more money for, so we can buy better food. We want some really, really, really good food. Now, I love good food. I ate at this fantastic Peruvian restaurant in the Plaza Mariachi yesterday. It was incredible. I loved it. I was on cloud nine. My family's almost embarrassed by how happy I am. Then I got an avocado popsicle, walking around an avocado ice cream popsicle. Have you ever had avocado ice cream? It's so good. I love food too, so I try to get them fasting with me to make me stop eating so much. That's sort of our idols, right? But I want to get them giving an offer. I remember one of the first disciples that I was working with, I always change people's names when I use real stories so that you feel safe, (laughs) and uh, especially if I haven't had permission. But we'll just call them Michael and Sarah. I started to call them James and Sarah, and, and Pastor James did not like it. He said, please change that name. So Michael and Sarah. Michael was a new believer, and he asked me to disciple him. And I remember the, the lunch at Pizza Hut Buffet where I said, we got to get you tithing 10% for the sake of your soul. The enemy has his grips in you on money. But he started laying out for me all of his bills and all the things he was trying to He was working two jobs. His wife was working a job. They had two, three young kids they were trying to support. And uh, I said, listen, we, we've got to just do it by faith. God will take care of you. And I started talking about the times my concrete pylons went down to the unseen and reached the bedrock of God's faithfulness. When I stepped out in faith, he took care of me. It wasn't enough for him. He couldn't do it. So I said, all right, we'll, we'll, we'll just sort of baby step you. Just baby step you along the way. And we went from 3% to 4% to 5%. Just tried to incrementalize, right? But while that was going on, I tried to do an end around. What I said, call her, Sarah. That's not her name. Sarah. So invited them to go on a missions trip. Michael said there's no way he could get off work to go on a week-long missions trip to Quito, Ecuador. She could get off her part-time job because she was working for the church. Bing! So I'm in control of that. Take care of that little piece said, you just step out in faith, start trying to raise the funds. If God brings you the funds, you go. If he doesn't bring you the funds, don't go. 
What's the risk to you? So we go on a mission trip to Quito, Ecuador. And I remember the moment that we told people to keep their money in several different places to not take their passport with them when we're traveling. She didn't listen because she was scared that somebody might steal stuff from her room. So she put all of her money and all of her IDs into her fanny pack. And we're in a crowded public transport in the major city of Quito, Ecuador, and she has it slung over her shoulder. And somebody, when the doors open, grabs it and forcibly yanks it out of her arms and takes off running across the square as fast as they can. Do as fast. So you got to give them some props, you know. She wailed. Wailed. We thought she was injured. We thought maybe she'd been cut. She was wailing, fell, collapsed on the ground, but it was because money had been taken from her. Do you see it? People stood with her lines to help her get her re-identification process happening. We all took up an offering to make sure that she could have some spending money. She ended up having more spending money than what she'd had in her fanny bag. She felt guilty, wanted to give it back, and everybody said, no, that's what we felt like we were supposed to give. Don't rob us of our blessing. We're trying to bless you instead of what the enemy wanted to use as a curse. Don't take that from us. You keep that. Spend it how you want, which blew her away. Then we went and tried to build a church for these impoverished people up in the mountains of Quito, Ecuador. They would, you know, their kids were trying to get one meal a day. Uh, the men were, were riding an hour and a half each way to work in a factory and getting paid pittance. They were living in eight-by-eight eight shacks constructed from trash they found. We were uh, building a church out of hand-poured concrete and concrete blocks. At the end of the week, they fed us a feast to thank us for building a church for them. Uh, these are people who get chicken three or four times a year, and they, they killed all the, these free-running chickens they could find, and corn, they gathered corn together, and some potatoes, they made a feast for us. You should have seen Sarah just streaming with tears during that meal. When we left on the bus, we're leaving on the bus, she just started getting rid of stuff. She couldn't take it anymore. This dates it a little bit. This was 2000, don't judge me. But she took her CD player that we'd been using, which actually was worth something back then. I took her CD player and was throwing it out the window, trying to kick off her shoes, trying to take off extra items of clothes, anything she could get rid of and get out the window. A transformation had happened in her heart. When we came back, they became tithers. She quit her part-time job, hurt us, helped them. He took his second job down from, from the amount of hours he was working down to a minimum part-time. They started tithing by faith. God provided for them in every way. They had more financial resources by the end than they had before they started tithing while they were working three jobs. The concrete pylon of their faith finally met the bedrock of God's faithfulness and the first established foundation was built on which that family can continue for generations. It takes time, but that's where we want to get all of our disciples. And tithing's just one piece of it, offerings and all, uh, sharing our faith, et cetera, et cetera. There's a lot of pieces to the path of God, so you, you need to fill those in. And we've just gone through the Purple Book Challenge. There's a reason for that. I don't have time to cover all of the path of God, but we are people who trust God's path, yes? We believe God's promise. We trust God's path. Third, we pursue God's purpose. We pursue God's purpose. Look back in verse 7 with me, if you will. Read it again, and I'm going to go a little farther. By faith, Noah, being warned by God concerning events as yet unseen, in reverent fear constructed an ark for the, sal the saving of the salvation of his household. 
By this he condemned the world and became an heir to the righteousness that comes by faith. By faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place that he was to receive as an inheritance, and he went out not knowing where he was going. By faith, he went to live in a land of, catch the word, promise, as in a foreign land living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of the same Promise, for he was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. By faith, Sarah herself received power to conceive, even when she was past the age, since she considered him faithful who had promised. Therefore, from one man and him as good as dead were born descendants as many as the stars of heaven and as many as the innumerable grains of sand by the seashore. Purpose. When each of these figures because of a confident faith, took a step out into the path God had laid for them. They were moving towards a purpose far greater and far more glorious than they could have ever imagined or drawn out for themselves. Noah built an ark in dry land, a big boat on dry land in a land that had never seen rain. He told them water was going to fall from the sky, and they said, you're crazy. You're an idiot. You're an absolute lunatic. But he built the boat anyway and saved his family. He was only focused on his family. We're his descendants. We're his inheritors. He saved all of us. He got into a purpose far greater than he could ever imagine. Abraham was only hoping for a place to park his tent in peace and prosperity. He was only hoping for one son with his wife to come to him from, as a gift from God. But what came to him was an inheritance far greater, peoples who would outnumber the stars in the sky, the sand on the seashore. When he took small steps of faith that seemed to be just about him and his life, but he was pursuing God's promise and God's path, God swept him up into a purpose is far greater, far more glorious, far more incredible, far more significant, far more meaningful than anything he could have ever hoped to have. When we disciple someone, it may seem like a small step of faith, but it is building and redeeming things that can flower out for generations to come. When we lead a life group, that may seem like a small activity, but we're discipling groups of people who will be discipling groups of people. We're digging concrete pylons down to the faithfulness of God that something that really glorifies him can be built upon. It may seem small, but when we step out, God acts. Can I tell you a story? Uh, when I first came to Christ, I already knew I was called to preach because of some strange occurrences in my life. Uh, when I finally gave in to the Lordship of Christ, uh, I'd come out of a very rebellious period. I was in trouble with the law. I'd done some things I'm very not proud of. My parents had to get lawyers. I was doing community service. I went through a deep depression time. But just a year after I gave my life to Christ, my pastor was shoving me up into a pulpit because he saw something in me I couldn't see, and he wanted to push it into the future of its purpose. And so he gave me 30 minutes. I took 10. And it was the worst sermon ever created in the history of humanity. I had a crumpled up piece of notebook paper I couldn't even read. I was physically quaking. You could see me shaking up in the pulpit. My tongue kept sticking to the roof of my mouth. It was like there was a, just a 
thin film of glue or over my tongue because I was so nervous. I couldn't get my mouth to open up. I had no clue what I was saying. I couldn't even read my own writing. You know this Holly because she has to read my notes. I tell her I love her. She can't read it. I, she, there's no way you could read what I'd written down. And so I had no idea what I was saying. I was completely lost. Afterwards, a little old lady who prayed for me every week just patted my hand and said, don't worry, son. Don't worry, son. Someday. Someday you'll be a good preacher. We're still waiting for someday. We have hope, right? We have hope. That terrible sermon, though, set me on a path. God was flowering in me a gift. And every time since, you know, every, I remember laying on of hands when I finally received the gift. And every time, even since that laying on of hands, I come to a point where I'm at the end of my resources. I've worked the best I know how to work. The sermon isn't there. I ask for God to give it, and he gives it. He gave me way more than I have time to give you today. That terrible sermon was stepping out in faith on one little path that began. I had no idea I would train preachers all over the world. I had no idea I would be a professor of preaching. I couldn't even fathom that. Still don't deserve it. Still am amazed by it. I don't know why I'm getting to do what I get to do. I don't deserve one ounce of what I get to do. I'm only saved by grace. You have no idea what God's going to sweep you up into when you take a tiny step. You have no idea where he's going to take you when you follow down his path. And you aren't capable of doing what he's going to call you to do. Don't let that stop you because it's not your power at work. It's his power at work. If it was up to you, you would have a very small life, right? Would you stand with me? I want to put a picture of that uh, condo up on the screen one more time because this is the kind of house we don't want to be, this condo, beachside condo in Surfside, Florida. If we don't take the time to build these kind of foundations in life after life after life, this is what will happen to everything we're trying to do at Bethel. It'll collapse and it will destroy. But if we can build the kind of deep biblical foundations, which we've only just scratched the surface of today, but if we can do the work, something greater will happen. So I want you to say these three things with me that I've been working through today. I want you to say them out loud. If you'll put them all up on the screen, I'd appreciate that. These three statements I want us to say together. Let's say them all together. We believe God's promise. We trust God's path. We pursue God's purpose. Let's say it again. We believe God's promise. We trust God's path. We pursue God's purpose. That's the kind of family we are. That's what we do here at Bethel. And there's a lot buried underneath those simple words, but you can hold on to those simple words and make sure that every person that you try to, to establish biblical foundations in it, it has those three statements in their heart. They believe God's promise. They trust his path. They're pursuing his purpose. So here's my challenge to you. As Pastor James is going to come up and close here in just a moment. Here's my challenge. This Wednesday, we're gathering uh, to talk about all of our discipleship processes and the key moment with those, which is our life groups. We need every leader there. We need every disciple there. Uh, we need you there Wednesday night. If you want to be a part of establishing biblical foundations in other people's lives, if you want your following of Christ to be about something more than just what you receive, we need you there Wednesday night at 7 o'clock. I'm not just asking. We need you. Wednesday night, 7 o'clock, this same room. If you need to wear a mask, wear a mask. If you want to sit out in the corner of the way back, it's more socially distanced than it is on Sunday morning. Trust me, you can come. It's safe. If you're online right now and you didn't make it this morning, come Wednesday night, 7 o'clock. We need you here 
for the sake of future generations of faith. If you come, you will be blessed. You will be encouraged. You will be strengthened. You'll be glad you did. Pastor James. Come on, let's give it up. Uh, As we close here, um, a brief announcement. Uh, You need to review your notes and perhaps review this word. You need to dig down deep. You need to let the foundation and the bedrock. You You need to let Jesus, you need to keep digging until you get all the way where you need to be so you, you can be strong. You won't collapse. You won't be a, a building meant or destined to fall, but you'll be a building destined to stand. Um, you need to be fully established. Each of you know where you're weak. You need to be fortified. Please take advantage of all of the things at our church to help fortify your foundations and help you be established in the faith. Uh, two things, if you could reach in your seat back, dig down, there's a little thing that said, let's do dinner. Go ahead and grab it out and wave it at me. Wave it at me. Wave it at me. It's popular for everyone to ask me to dinner. I already have all the invitations I can get, so I just want to let you know I'm not being rude. Just wait till maybe October. Cause I'm gonna have to catch up, uh, huh? Too much, yeah. And I, I, I don't want to be fat. Y'all got to start cooking vegetables or something for me. It's, it's getting ridiculous. You know, don't you tell? I need vegetables, okay? Uh, it's, 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 let's do dinner. And on the back, uh, place for your name, your phone number, your email and your details so don't get weird you know because i know it's like you want to obey but then it's like it doesn't it feels awkward we are family as we take the awkward out everybody's going to be talking to everybody and engaging so just kind of go up to somebody and say hey don't know you you know you think we want to you want to do that you know just whatever or, and if that's weird for you just go to one of the staff or the ministers and say help me get somebody because you know, I don't know how to do that. But don't fail to participate. Because we're not just trying to come into church and leave. We're trying to be a family together. Family that prays together, stays together. Family that eats together, enjoys life more. Okay, uh, so take that card and invite somebody. And now immediately following the service, if you go to the Future Fellowship Hall, we have a paid for meal for you for we, so we can fellowship. Please don't just leave and run out of church. I want you to talk about this message at your table. I want you to talk about how you're going to apply it to your life. Let me pray for you. Uh, Lord, thank you so much for the speaker today. Not a speaker, a, a pastor in this house. God, that he disciplined himself to deliver a word that could be movemental in our church. May we not be hearers only, but may we be doers of the word. Would you help us retain it and produce fruit a hundredfold? God, I thank you. As a result of what we heard today, somebody's going to come out of darkness into the light. Somebody's going to get healed, delivered, set free, set on a path to their destiny, plant a church, go into ministry. That's how powerful 
disciple making can be. So bless us as we leave this place but not your presence. Keep us in the center of your will and that's the apple of your eye. In Jesus' name, amen. Give God a round of applause. If you're new to Bethel, you'd like to meet me or the pastors, come over to guest reception. Everybody else, go to the Future Fellowship Hall, take pictures, get t-shirts. Go have fun, family. You are dismissed. Lord, prepare me to be a saint you.